This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is Jacqueline Novogratz. She started her career in banking, where she was a real up-and-comer. Everyone saw her as a star, somebody who would get great executive responsibilities as the years wore on. And then she shocked everyone, her family, her colleagues. She put it all aside, chucked it aside, and decided to move to Africa to put her skills to work, to try to empower women entrepreneurs, men entrepreneurs as well, in Africa and elsewhere. She documented her experiences in her best-selling book, The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World. It is an extraordinary story to say the least. She learned lessons the hard way, on the ground, through experience. In the first part of our conversation, you'll hear how early on in her career, she was actually poisoned in Africa for seeming like an interloper. You'll hear how she fought to overcome cultural and religious biases that kept women disempowered. And you'll learn the shocking lessons that hit her from what happened in the Rwandan genocide in 1994, when colleagues she worked with, people she thought she knew well, ended up doing terrible, terrible things. But first, what's ahead? Well, everyone is going to be focusing on the impeachment trial in the Senate. But normal Americans, which thankfully include most of the country, are going to be focused on really important stories, such as the Super Bowl and the unfolding scandal in baseball, the biggest scandal to hit baseball in 100 years. Back in 1919-1920, it came out that members of the White Sox baseball team had actually taken money from gamblers to throw the World Series. It became known in history as the Black Sox scandal. We've got a juicy one now as it comes out that the Houston Astros and then the Boston Red Sox stole signals from opposing teams using high technology and some pretty crude technology as well. They cheated. The Astros won the 2017 World Series, but from now on, that series is going to be seen as morally tainted, a moral asterisk. Same is true of the Red Sox in 2018. They cheated in the same way, stealing signals. Stealing signals in baseball is like stealing intellectual property, hacking a computer. It's just not done. And the heads are starting to roll, and they'll continue to roll. Right now, it's a big question mark. The new incoming manager of the Mets, Carlos Beltran, was part of this scandal. Will he be able to take his new job this spring with the Mets, or will he become the next casualty? Now, also, too, they signed a trade agreement last week with China, but most of those tariffs are still on, which is going to be a bit of a drain on the economy. And, of course, there'll be a lot of blather about the Iowa caucuses. The polls? Ignore them. They're all over the place, which shows how close that race is. We're not going to know until the caucuses actually take place. And now you're going to get a real treat, something that you're going to learn from and be inspired by in the first part of our conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. Our special guest today is Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the author of the famous book, The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World. She also has a new book coming out this May called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Ideas You Can Use to Change the World, Ideas That She Learned the Hard Way. 
Jacqueline is a pioneer in combining philanthropy and venture capital in fighting poverty around the world. Her Acumen organization has had enormous success, which we'll be discussing shortly. Jacqueline was an Army brat. She was the oldest of seven children, put herself to the University of Virginia, among other ways, having three jobs at once. She got into banking in an unusual way. Her parents told her, you may not want to go into banking, but do this interview anyway, get experience. She went to Chase Bank, told the interviewer that. He said, too bad, because we could have had a job for you where you could travel around the world, see numerous countries. So Jacqueline, being an entrepreneur, said, okay, let's begin the interview again. I've wanted to work for a bank since I was six years old. She got the job. But she turns out she had a real knack for finance and banking. She once said, finance and accounting are another form of storytelling. So she gets the job at Chase, does extremely well, but then makes a profound decision. She decides, even though she's told she has a fast track to a very, very high level work with the chief operating officer of the bank, she decides she wants to do good in the world. She wants to go to Africa. She was told, given this advice, just start. Don't wait for perfection. Just start and let the work teach you. And that's been her motif. But you go to Africa, Jacqueline, and you find out you're not going to be greeted with rose petals and saying, oh, show us the way. As a matter of fact, you learn quickly they see you as an interloper, an outsider, often unwanted, at least at the beginning. And one of the things you do in Rwanda first of a small step, but every journey, as they say, begins with a small step, a thousand-mile journey. You help a woman open a bank account in Rwanda, a country where back then you had to have the husband's permission to open a bank account. Start with that little success, but a profound one. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on this show, and thank you for the way that you uh, did such a great summary of the book so far. Um, you're really bringing me back. Um, Mazalina was actually in Nairobi, and that's where I saw her great fear of even walking through the doors of the bank. In Kenya at the time, you could open a bank account, but only if you had a certain number of shillings to deposit, which very few poor people had. And so I gave her the necessary money, which wasn't very much, um, so that she could open it. And that gave me real insight into how hard it was for the poor who had internalized that they weren't welcome, plus the fact that they didn't have the kind of money that was needed. Then in 1986, Rwanda, for the first time in history, changed Napoleonic Code, which had dictated um, whether or not women could open a bank account. At that time, they were put into the same category as children and the mentally incapable, and so could only open a bank account with their husband's permission um, once that changed, it was game on. And that's when I moved uh, to Rwanda to work with a group of women to start the country's first microfinance bank. But it wasn't a smooth journey. Uh, you spent some time, I think, with the African Development Bank. <laughs> you, were, you were not welcome. You uh, ended up uh, spending time in a country called Cote d'Ivoire, used to call the Ivory Coast. And uh, you were warned there, because you're an outsider who wanted to bring real change, you were warned by a woman, don't eat around these particular women officials because you will be poisoned. Not to kill you, 
but just to warn you off. And you were poisoned. Tell us about that and what you learned. Yeah. What I learned was, um, number one, the importance of being introduced in the proper way. That um, for all good intentions, I was sent by a, a nonprofit organization to go be an ambassador to African women and help them set up these microfinance organizations and um, and arrived only to, to discover that no one wanted me there. Um, the fact that there was an office in the African Development Bank meant that this was a position of real prestige. And I would say that many of the African women had a real point in wondering why you would give that to a 25-year-old white girl from New York City who barely spoke French and had very little understanding of the African context. Um, but rather than sit down and have that conversation, there was so little trust, I think, um, that they just proactively tried to make it exceedingly uncomfortable uh, to the point where whether it was a deliberate poisoning or I did eat something that uh, had nothing to do with them, I got violently ill for um, about six days um, where I just couldn't move. And that was pretty much a turning point for me of this may be bigger than I can handle and, um, and decided that I needed to both learn a new humility myself because most nobody really wants saving, um, certainly not by someone like, you know, a kid at that point, um, and that there were real ways to enter a new place and that uh, we could have done a much better job. Because as you pointed out at the time in a country like Rwanda, if you're an entrepreneur, you're ambitious, you wanted to get into government not the private sector. That was the way to wealth. So you have a, another humbling lesson, a microloan project in Kenya. Microloan institution, a lot of problems. You go in there, a lot of knowledge. You uh, do a thorough report, lots of indices, going through spreadsheets, everything. This was a day before you could store things in the cloud. The internet didn't even exist. And what was the reception to the problems you pointed out yeah. and the reforms they could make to make this thing really work? To your point, I was so eager to prove my worth after having failed so miserably in Cote d'Ivoire that I, um, and you remember those green ledger sheets, I um, did a full analysis of the bank, uh, the portfolio, and saw that they were pretty shockingly in arrears and that many of the loans had been made to friends of the board and that um, I saw all of this as a great opportunity to actually change and improve the institution. And of course, it completely threatened the status quo. And my um, enthusiasm was met with a stone-faced response, first and foremost. And then secondly, all of my work mysteriously got burned um, and so it just kind of literally disappeared into ashes. And that was another big lesson to me around um, getting buy-in as you're trying to build and understanding who holds the status quo and what it will actually take to create, to create change. So you go to Rwanda, going to try to set up a microloan company, and uh, you have to tackle it head-on. How do you build accountability into nonprofit organizations? So you get this bank going, 
But then you get an early test because people are so accustomed to traditional philanthropy, as was practiced then, where failure was expected. Describe this early test and how you overcame it, that this institution was going to be different from what they'd experienced before. Yeah. I mean, you're making me realize what a puppy I was. I would just bound into places with this That's great... That's how you learn. <laughs> ...enthusiasm. And, um, and Let the work teach you. <laughs> and let the work teach you. And this idea that we could solve these prob- problems was in and of itself a radical idea. Um, and so when we first started making loans, I just assumed everybody would repay and that that, that was the discipline. And one of the first things we learned was that... Um, uh, the women would lie or hide their uh, goods, um, and um, and it was it was incredibly humbling because I thought we were doing the service and we were all in, and I had to realize that the women didn't trust us. We we were still perceived of as an institution, a distant institution. We weren't neighbors, and therefore we were there to quote unquote help them, i.e., give them things, and it was. It was a bit of a a reckoning um, collectively to say that the only way this will work is if that you pay back and then we lend you again. And it was finding the, the, the business models to show examples as well as role models of people who had done it in the right way that then um, gave us the kind of momentum that we needed. One of the things you learned early too was the task of training people so that they could carry this work out in a way that had not been expected of people before. Yeah. Amartya Sen talks about um, access to markets being a form of freedom. And I think that's such a profound statement. Um, but access to markets is not a- enough. When we had started the microfinance bank, I had made the assumption that by giving women um, small loans for their tiny businesses, we would see jobs created. But in fact, not many people are actually entrepreneurs. And um, and so I wanted to prove that some of these little businesses could ultimately create jobs and maybe we needed role models. And since I couldn't find any, I thought I would start one myself. And so in addition to building the bank, we started this little bakery. The Blue Bakery. The Blue Bakery. And Early on, I realized that the women didn't have the, the, the capacity to actually interact with markets in a way that would allow them to thrive. And so I, I almost became a cheerleader and a coach as much as an entrepreneur. And every Friday, we would sit and I would teach them what it would actually mean to make our sales go up, um, why it was important to control our costs how the numbers worked as to whether we were making a profit or a loss. And we had a lot of bumps along the way, for sure. Well, one of the challenges was having them get over the cultural inhibitions of selling to somebody, going in and asking for a sale. And there you learned also how we internalized the way other people see us, that these were all single mothers. And so in a very Catholic, conservative country— um, were called prostitutes, um, even though that's certainly not how they live their lives. But they internalized that they, therefore, weren't allowed to look at every at anyone in the eyes. They weren't allowed to be um, at all aggressive. And so um, we would we would have 
training sessions that were all about introducing themselves, saying what they did. And we would have them go into these little stores in Kigali, which is the capital of Rwanda, um, and offer different snacks. And, and we made it fun. And within the course of the year, they ended up making essentially four times what the minimum wage was in that country. And I watched the women get taller. I watched them um, gain in confidence. And that changed my life in terms of understanding that we want silver bullets, give people access to credit, but without the capability to use that credit um, and understand it, uh, we're not going to get the kind of it's change like that we want. Giving a kid a baseball, but not showing him how to throw it and play it. Yeah, and then blaming the kid for not being good, um, because no one, even though no one's really accompanied them. So this led to your realization. Tell us why traditional charities too often fail. Back then. Back then, and even now, I think that too often, um, out of every good intent. We show up wanting to help people, and and the unintended consequences is creating dependence. And what I have learned in my life is that dependence is the opposite of dignity, that what we want as human beings is choice and opportunity, and that when someone just gives us stuff without enabling us to take advantage of it, um, it, can, it can often cripple us. And... Um, and we have to do better than that. You learned too, or they, the women learned, money is freedom. It's freedom. It's not the only form of freedom, but man, does it help. Um, in the case of the women um, at the bakery, um, I started to understand that they felt so often they couldn't say no, not to landlords, not to anybody. Um, because they had nothing to offer. And as they started to have even a tiny amount of money that they could control, they were also able to say yes and to say no. And that is something we, uh, too many of us, take for granted. So uh, you get the bakery off the ground. Uh, you still have challenges with the bank. You recount a story of women who were borrowing at usurious rates of interest and you were offering a lower rate of interest. But because you call it interest rather than a fee, the religious leaders said, you can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I work in Pakistan and we still have some of the same issues. And the um, again, we, we as human beings, we fear change. And one of the things I've learned is that, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is that traditionally systems have been set up so that inside tribes we don't charge any interest, but we let moneylenders be from outside the tribe. And, um, and in this case, we were outside the tribe um, of very uh, Christian communities. And yet um, when I would take on the ministers and try to explain that, um, we were charging so much less than the than the moneylenders, and that, in fact, we were uh, barely covering our costs. Uh, it didn't matter. It fell on deaf, deaf ears. But as a young person, I finally started to understand that this was about control. This wasn't about what was really good for the women. And um, 
those were some painful lessons where I, I think for me, I started to really understand what the guardians of culture, the guardians of the status quo are. And it's too easy for us to hide in the corner of culture and say, that's why things can't change. It's our culture. It's our tradition. And we have to have the courage to analyze and understand what is beautiful and essential about our culture, about our traditions, and carry them into the future. And equally, we have to find the moral courage to jettison what no longer serves. And that principle um, has become something deeply important um, as we've continued and I've continued to build out there in the world. The success of the projects you've been involved with, you've, some, you've pointed out from time to time, they threaten local politics, they threaten, you call the guardians of culture, and it's a fact of life you have to deal with. They threaten parents. When they see a young person um, uh, doing things in ways that the parents, you know, mothers-in-laws don't like it when their daughters sometimes are venturing out into the world to earn their, their own income. Um, Sometimes I see in the countries in which we're working even today, um, young people who come from very traditional business families who have an idea of business as usual, which includes paying bribes um, at customs. Let's jump ahead just for a moment in the, in the narrative. That bribe question was very relevant in Pakistan. We, after 9-11, you decided this is an area we have to go into. You never are put off by potential hostility. If there's a problem, challenge, let's go deal with it. But you were working with a, a Pakistani who wanted to do a housing project that sounded very, very promising, would have real results, but a local official wanted the payoff and the decision was made, you weren't going to do it. Walk us through that. It's a very good lesson that you don't have to give in to what you call the viruses of a local culture. Yeah. Uh, Javad Aslam, who was our um, Pakistani-American who was trying to create the first ever Sharia-compliant mortgage system for the poor um, and the first affordable housing development um, in a private sector way, um, got stuck because of a fairly insignificant bribe that was, rec- that was required for registering the land. And it was like a 29-year-old um, young uh, kind of skinny registrar that was the stumbling block. And Javad had made a decision that he would not pay a bribe. And he came to us and said, I'm so humiliated because I haven't even put a spade in the ground. Um, And I'm blocked by this guy. And I said, look, we're patient capital, that we need to create new role models as much as new business models. So we will stand by you. And it was... It took about 18 months. It was a long time before we, Javad got the registration. Um, And it's been a 10-year process for him. Um, The good news, now going back past the book, is that Javad has built about 3,000 homes. Um, Now he stands as the only for-profit affordable housing company for the poor. Um, He's raised about uh, $30 million um, dollars now to take this model across the country, paid us back uh, with a, a fair return, and sits on the prime minister of Pakistan's um, housing um, advisory board. And so I think is a real 
model for what can be done by doing the right thing, not the easy thing. Uh, it can take longer, and you you sure, certainly need allies. But this is the kind of moral leadership that must intersect with entrepreneurship if we are going to solve our toughest problems of poverty. So in uh, going back to uh, Rwanda, one of the other lessons you learned was in terms of bringing people along was ask questions, learn to listen, take it in so they can learn to trust you and you can trust them. Yeah. Um, I think listening is such an underrated and crucially important skill, particularly uh, right now in the 21st century where we seem to be doing everything but listening. Um, and that when you're listening across lines of difference, and particularly when you're listening across lines of privilege, um, it gets— and By the way, privilege is not just Western. One of the points you make and why aid in the past does not work is that the elites from all around the world have sort of the same disdain, separation from the poorest among them. Oh, yeah. Nobody own, holds the corner on uh, privilege. And in fact, almost in every situation, um, that privilege is also fluid. Um, and I've seen over times where a man can get beaten down in, in his workplace day after day. And so goes home where he's the one in privilege and beats his wife. And that part of understanding power and privilege is to understand its fluidity and to recognize when when we're in the position of privilege, how do we um, interact in a different way? And that there is a, there is a way that we need to listen um, to people who, for whom no one has ever listened historically and to ask questions in a way that um, will allow them to get closer to their truth rather than to tell you what they think you want them to say. You are famous for your notebook when you talk with people, asking them precise questions, getting those metrics, writing it down. And also, though, as you just pointed out, trying to get them to answer in a way where they're not trying to please you, but giving you information that you need. Yeah. We've built something at Acumen called um, Lean Data, where we can text five, 10,000 customers of our companies at any given time. And we ask a series of questions from which we can deduce income levels, what has changed in their lives as a result of a solar lamp or what have you. And, um, and we do what's called an MPS score, um, which is a net, it's called a net promoter score that big consulting companies use with corporations. And um, are you, would you recommend this product to anyone? And that can work in a corporation, but when you're talking to a low-income farmer or woman, um, they always say yes. And so we have to actually learn how to ask that question in a much more precise way. Have you ever recommended this product to a neighbor or to anyone else? And then you get a very different response. And so it's as simple as that. Because candor in the past usually gets you in trouble. Gets you in trouble. And if you want something from that person that's asking you a question, it becomes a skill set to understand what they want and therefore not tell them the truth. Um, in Rwanda, you have two major successes, given what you faced. But share with us, because she's going to come back later, 
the story we've heard about Constance, I think it was, it was, you know, you had three parliamentarians in Rwanda who were working with you. Three women, never happened before getting into parliament. One of them murdered, hit and run. Talk about her and then Agnes. Not what ultimately happened, but what she did in the business. Mm. So let's let, let's start with it. Was it Constance who was murdered? Yeah, um, I didn't name them. I didn't use their real names, Steve, in the book because when I was writing, it was still so such a raw um, situation in Rwanda. But um, her real name was Felicula, um, and she was a nun, and um, was one of the first three. Um, women parliamentarians, and I adored her. Um, she was really the first person who fully accepted me across all of the lines of difference that we had. And um, she was much more idealistic that she was pragmatic, but that idealism really pushed um, a lot of things forward. And um, one of the things that she pushed right at the beginning when we started Duterembede, which was the name of our microfinance bank, was the idea of um, abolishing bride price. At the time, um, um, uh, uh, a would-be suitor would approach the father of his potential bride um, with three cows as his bride price, um, which was a price that was well beyond the means of most, um, most farmers in Rwanda, but that wasn't really the point. Reducing women to chattel was what which rubbed uh, Felicula and the other parliamentarians wrong. And so they decided it was high, high time to abolish it. Um, for lots of political reasons, they were successful in doing so at parliament. And a couple of days later, the, the women, the poorest women in the country, actually rose up in arms that they used to be worth three cows. Now they were worth nothing. And... Um, and learned a, a very important lesson about how disconnected elites can sometimes be um, from even understanding how fearful people can be around change of any kind because it entails a sense of loss. Um, and not knowing the future. And not knowing the future. And so, and tradition can run deep. And so, um, someone needed to pay a price a few weeks later. The um, the parliament overturned the decision, but um, a few weeks later, uh, Felicula was killed in a mysterious hit-and-run accident. Um, many alleged that it was um, from government. That was never uh, determined um, absolutely, but I certainly learned at a very young age the price some people pay for rejecting the status quo. Now let's... Uh go to a second parliamentarian, Agnes, and uh, what you discovered she was doing in the bank. Yeah. Agnes of the three parliamentarians was the one, and that is her real name, was the one who, um, uh, as an an older person now, um, I can see how much she loved power, even though we were very small fish in a very small fish pond. Um, and and like so many people who are true politicians and love the feel of power, she was the most effective speechmaker of the three. 
really could connect with women in what we used to call the colline or the hillsides. And um, and yet there was always a part of me that thought um, she wasn't really in it. Uh, she loved driving her Mercedes and she loved um, being in halls of power. Um, and then one day we discovered that um, there was about $3,000 missing um, and we traced it back to her, which was incredibly painful and another um, major challenge uh, for me as a young person. Now what do you do when you're the outsider? And um, luckily, the third parliamentarian who I um, call Constance and, and stick with that name, um, she was a woman who understood that we had to operate at the highest levels of integrity. And she definitely helped create a situation where Agnes resigned. We devote more time to parliamentary duties, celebrated her, and we moved forward. Um, and those two stayed in parliament um, through the genocide regime. Now, before you left Rwanda, another thing you learned is not everyone shares your pace and energy. And one of them gave you a piece of advice. Take two months off. That Come was back Constance. in two months. Constance. Yeah. Um, I I had gotten malaria. I was super sick, which in some ways was a, a gift in a, in a funny, funny way. And um, she said, you know, we just don't move at your pace. And we have funerals and families and um, and and really helped me understand um, something that my team could still give me insight around, if I'm honest. Um, and so we we came up with this plan where I would go to where I would go to Kenya and other countries in East Africa, and I would help work with low income women on enterprise, and then I would go back, um, and each time I would leave business plans and work plans for the teams to move forward or not uh, in that period. And the gift she gave me was an understanding that none of us do anything alone, that if you want to build a local institution, you must have local partners that will take responsibility for it and they must feel that they own it. And indeed, they must own it. Because me, I was inconsequential in the long term. And once I understood that, that I was there to support, to teach. provide, to teach whatever I could and to learn, um, I became much more of a leader. And I feel deeply grateful to this day for that advice. This also led, though, to, as you say in the book, your exasperation with so-called development experts, well-intentioned projects gone wrong. You really began to realize that uh, a lot of more harm was being done than good, that uh, if you want to be loved, don't go in philanthropy because uh, get applause elsewhere. You're here to get something really done. So you make a decision that you're going to uh, increase your skills uh, by going to uh, Stanford Business School, delightful passage on letters of recommendation in, in the book on that. But there was a period of months before you went to Stanford and when you left Rwanda and you get uh, an assignment to go to Gambia. To uh, There was a $15 million grant. You examine it, and you figure out it's not going to work, but here's the way make it work, and it'll only cost $1 million. <laughs> So you go to the government minister, 
a woman, and she suddenly turns into an iceberg that could sink the Titanic. Describe that and what you learned from that. Yeah. And same with that, the World Bank, because they had already put in $2 million in consulting fees. So they were bought into a $15 million facility. And I just kept saying, you know, it was almost like a mantra, but this isn't going to work. And yet you're going to put more debt onto a country that cannot afford it. And there were only 280,000 women farmers in this tiny country of 800,000 people at the time. Just give them the money if you are going to make things worse by the projects that we build. And um, and so you use the word appropriately, you know, being iced out. And um, and I, I, I really learned um, how we have created systems, and we are the system, that we've created and allowed systems that reward politics and reward... Um, inertia, um, more than reward results. And we need to find ways that break that. And now I think we have a whole generation that sees that our institutions have run their course. Um, and, And we need to imagine new ones, but we've not yet done that, which is where we've got to build a new set of skills that are morally driven towards solving problems and holding ourselves accountable to solving those problems, figuring out the right kinds of capital and talent to push against those problems. Um, But I would say that was the beginning of my education, um, to realize that the way the world worked when the big money was at play um, was that different constituencies were wanting to do good and yet getting stuck at focusing on what they themselves needed more than those people who had no voice um, needed. So you go to the back to the U.S., you do Stanford, you do work with the uh, Rockefeller Foundation and others, and uh, you, you seem to have come to hit on two things that really crystallized. One is, as you've mentioned, you got to teach people, so it's not just you. They don't have to reinvent the wheel every time somebody goes someplace. The importance of that teaching workshops and the like, but also scale, that if you're going to make a difference, you got to go beyond two successes in Rwanda. you got to figure out how to scale this thing and show others how to scale it. Before we get to those two things, though, you got a painful lesson in human nature. Mm. The Rwandan genocide in 1994, as you mentioned in the book, you didn't know the people you work with, whether they're Hutus or Tutsis, they're the two major groups both in Rwanda and Burundi. You sort of knew in Burundi, Tutsis were get killed in the past Hutus. Uh, but you, that wasn't a factor when you were there. And uh, then in 1994, a radical government comes in, and in the space of 90 days, 800,000 people are murdered, mostly with machetes. The international community, for the most part, just stood by as the slaughter took place. 10% of the population, equivalent to the U.S. of, in a matter of months, 30 million people being killed. And uh, mostly the Tutsis, but also moderate Hutus who didn't buy into this uh, uh, genocide. And uh, so eventually you go back to see what had happened to the people and to the institutions. And walk us through 
what you think led to that genocide, and then the poignant story of what happened to particular individuals that you would work so closely with and the different paths that uh, each of them ended up taking. Yeah, thanks. Um, the reason for genocide is such a complex, uh, kind of a complex analysis, but um, a, a tiny country that was landlocked and um, essentially had inherited feudalism, colonialism, Catholicism. There were a lot of isms that kept people... Um, Already in a in in, in a um, a low trust, I would say, environment, and on top of that, um, you had development agencies that were really wanting to move a country into multi-party democracy before it was ready, before it had the capability to actually engage in democracy. Um, Lesson you learn with the the bakery and the yeah, bank. Same. You've got to prepare people. You've got to prepare people. Um, Aid money not really taking into account um, the nuances of history, which were deep. You had many, many um, refugees from 1963 and living in Uganda um, from a pogrom that happened then when the, the Hutus moved into power over the Tutsis when, when prior, because of the colonialists, it was the other way around. So lots of history um, involved in all of that. And... Um, just as we're seeing in too many countries around the world today, once a, a an economy starts to, or a society starts to feel fear, in 1987 you also had a massive decline in coffee prices, which was the major crop, crop in that country. So now you've got even more poverty. It became very easy for demagogic leaders to start preying on our broken parts, if you will, creating sense of fear of the other. Um, Paul Kagame had come into the country. Um, He's a Tutsi, a Tutsi uh, rebel leader, rebel now, leader now from having, Uganda. Now the government, but now the he heads the government. At the time, he was a quote unquote rebel coming in, and so a mantra started to begin: "They're coming to get us. They're coming to kill us." There was one radio station, um, so from a media perspective, you had complete control over who was getting information and what information they were getting. And that just led to a conflagration, as you said. Um, and very, very good people did very, very terrible things to one another. Um, going back was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. And I actually went back over a four-year period every year for about a month just to try to understand how could good people do such terrible things and um, discovered that Agnes, um, one of the three parliamentarians, one of the three parliamentarians, most shocking of all, became um, a major perpetrator. She was the minister of justice under the genocide regime and um, was known for her vitriolic speech making across the country. Um, I visited her in prison a couple of times, which was um, quite a shocking experience. And I think that taught me that monsters and angels do exist, but not in the way that I had grown up thinking about them, that there were good people and bad people, but that, that they, they live inside each of us and that it's too easy in times of insecurity to prey on those pro broken parts and that we needed to build systems that really did bring out our better angels, to use Lincoln's phrase, um, and have the humility that that we're capable of both. Um 
The second one, who I call Constance, um, was a classic bystander. Uh, she, she was also a parliamentarian through the genocide regime. Um, and I visit her as well in, in prison a number of times and um, also on house arrest. And uh, it became very clear to me that um, fear held her, fear that something would happen to her if she really made a move, and it would have, and how remarkable people are who actually do put their lives at stake on behalf of others, you know, really, if you want to look at what moral courage is. And then um, the woman I call Prudence, who was not a parliamentarian, but one of our um, our founders, who was an identical twin, watched her whole family, essentially, not her whole family, but many of her family members, including um, her twin sister, um, be massacred, um, essentially because of um, very specific and deliberate work that Agnes had done um, to send the killers into her area. And so um, I think that's something I will be holding my whole life, and it's why this moment in history feels so fragile to me and that those of us who are trying to build human capability and um, the skills of transcending these lines of difference are so important. Powerful, timely, chilling words from Jacqueline Novogratz. Next week, there'll be more to come. But now, my reads of the week. We have two pieces. One is by John Tamney on Real Clear Markets. That's T-A-M-N-Y, John Tamney, Real Clear Markets. The piece is entitled, Congratulations to Ed Orgeron, College Football's Champion Failure. The point of Tamney's piece Several years ago, Orgeron was seen as a failure in football. He had learned his craft under the legendary Pete Carroll at USC, left USC to become coach of the famed Ole Miss University of Mississippi football team. But after three seasons, he was fired. People thought, yeah, he'd have a career in football, but never as a head coach of a team that really mattered. Well, through a variety of events that have only happened in the real world, he ended up as coach of LSU and he had learned the hard lessons of his failures at Ole Miss. And that's a lesson for all of us. You can get knocked down, but if we learn from what we did wrong, we can go on to achieve great things. And now Orgeron is the champion coach in college football. Always learn, keep moving ahead. The next piece is called One State, Two Stories by E.J. McMahon. That's E period, J period. His last name is M-C-M-A-H-O-N. And you can find his piece in City Journal. That's city-journal.org. He talks about the two economies of New York State. One, of course, is the 12-county New York City metropolitan area, which since the recession has done very well above the national average in terms of income, in terms of employment. But the rest of the state is an economic wasteland falling far behind the rest of the country. What gives? Why does one area do well and the other so poorly? Well, it turns out government policy is the villain here, as it so often is when an economy doesn't do well. Upstate New York is not allowed to frack. Well, Pennsylvania did it. 
Pennsylvania has created tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs related to fracking, many of them paying $70,000, $100,000 a year. But upstate New York, nothing. Upstate is hit by bad regulations, including recent anti-agricultural regulations, a workers' comp system that hurts small businesses, blocking gas pipelines, which raises energy costs. All of that and more account for a performance that is absolutely unnecessary. If those obstacles were removed, by golly, upstate New York would be as good or better than the New York metropolitan area. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 